Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hey everyone, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, another debate. My top line thoughts are, I don't think there's anything happened on this stage to really upset the trajectory of the race, particularly as it relates to what's happening in Iowa and New Hampshire. Mayor Pete, who has been surging in both of those states, surprisingly, I thought, did not take much incoming. Uh, and I thought you know, performed quite well. And I and I view these debates right now less through the prism of necessarily who wins headlines, as important as that is, or who raises money, and that's important. But will it affect the race in Iowa? Because that's the first gate. And I think Mayor Pete probably had a pretty strong performance uh, vis-a-vis that question, and certainly I don't think did anything to hurt the momentum that he's building there. Um, you know, I thought some of the other candidates, um, you know, had their moments. Um, I think Amy Klobuchar, who's surging a little bit in Iowa, or at least growing, um, had a pretty strong night. Uh, Cory Booker clearly uh, fighting for his political life, I think, uh, was quite strong. Kamala Harris had some very uh, strong moments. So I, I think at the end of the day, there was nothing that happened that really changed the debate. I think Vice President Biden, who I thought, you know, relatively had a decent uh, performance, uh, stumbled late, you know, talking about coming from the African-American community and, you know, saying he was supported by the only African-American female elected to the Senate, even though he was standing right next to one. And I was there. We picked Joe Biden and are so glad we did for a lot of reasons. But his strength in the African-American community, given that Barack Obama is an African-American candidate, was not one of the main reasons. So I think what we see with Vice President Biden, I think on foreign policy, you can see his crispness. Um, He just has mastery of the material. But so much of debates is precision, using the exact words that you want to use and that you practiced, your facts being accurate, really thinking through the argument you're making, the story you're telling. So precision is so important, and and best debaters in politics generally have that. I think he struggled with that outside of of foreign policy in these debates. But again, I don't think anything happened last night um, that is necessarily going to affect his support, although clearly uh, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris— you know, need to begin to rise in South Carolina and with African-American voters nationally. And and clearly even someone like Mayor Pete is looking to grow his support there. So, uh, you know, Vice President Biden has something right now that is treasured in this race, which is he's the strongest candidate with African-American voters. And I think that will be a pattern going forward. Um, So again, I don't think anything happened in the debate last night that is going to send shockwaves through the race. I think the most important thing happening right now uh, in the political campaign is what's happening in Iowa. And what you see there is Mayor Pete continues uh, to build support. Uh, The Des Moines Register poll, which is kind of the gold standard of Iowa caucus polling, had him up uh, significantly with Biden, Sanders, and Warren then bunched in a battle for second. Um, And we're starting to see some polls showing him winning in New Hampshire. So it's still incredibly early, but he's starting to get a little bit of separation in Iowa, maybe getting some separation in New Hampshire. We'll have to watch that carefully. Uh, So I'd be surprised in the next debate if there's not more fire trained at Mayor Pete, and there should be. I mean, whoever wins this nomination is going to be facing off against Donald Trump. And I personally, you know, as a citizen, as a Democrat, want to see how people take punches, low blows even, who can handle the spotlight or not. 
because who can counterpunch? So I, I like these debates, even though they might be painful while we're watching them, if they get a little tougher, I think it's really important practice. And for me anyway, I haven't decided who I'm going to vote for, but part of my equation is who I think is tough enough to handle Donald Trump and, and who's tough enough to handle the Oval Office in a situation room. Uh, and so if anything, I'd like to see these debates and arguments get a little stronger. Obviously, the impeachment proceedings are continuing. Some blockbuster testimony this week, which if anything may not change the public's view of whether he should be impeached and thrown out of office. Uh, but my sense is it makes people think this inquiry is fair and they want to learn more facts. So I think a really miserable week for the president, uh, despite his protestations on Twitter elsewhere. Uh, speaking of Twitter uh, and social media, um, we're going to go deep into the digital wars as they relate to politics in 2020. This campaign is going to be fought out primarily on phones and laptops and tablets in battleground states. And so we really need to understand what's happening right now the strategies that need to be deployed for the different platforms, because how you think about TikTok is different than how you think about Instagram, which is different than how you think about Facebook. And we're going to spend some time with Tara McGowan, the CEO and founder of Acronym, really a brilliant digital strategist, uh, who's going to educate us all about what we need to be paying attention to as it relates to the digital wars, what the Trump campaign is up to and why Democrats should be concerned about that, what we can do to counter that, and also the role and obligation and opportunity citizens have to play a role in these digital wars. We do not have to stand back and be bystanders. Uh, we can pick up our phone and get in the fight. We're joined by Tara McGowan, CEO of Acronym, and uh, someone who got her start in journalism and worked on the Obama campaigns in 2012, as I mentioned earlier, and now is leading a really important firm in the progressive ecosystem. Tara, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, David. It's great to be on. Well, let's start with this. I think we all think we know what digital means, but will you talk about what it means to you, particularly as it relates to a presidential campaign? Sure. I often joke that digital means everything and nothing <laughs> because <laughs> it's an adjective uh, and it's something that, you know, can be uh, a synonym or a descriptor of the Internet, technology, social media. So, you know, when, when people say Trump's digital game or digital program or digital infrastructure, I often feel like people must just think about kind of the dark underbelly of the Internet, um, which it can also mean. Um, but really, I think, you know, today we really do live in a digital age. We're all on our, our smartphones and our laptops and our tablets all the time. And it's where we're getting our information and where we're communicating and where we're organizing and where we're really engaging and keeping up with the people in our lives. And so it's, you know, it's a word that that's very, very, very loaded. And uh, a lot of the work that I do and my colleagues do and, and our organization does at Acronym is, is try to really break that down and make people understand uh, the different types of channels and platforms and strategies to best leverage uh, the internet, social media, technology, and mobile um, to to organize and and to inform and engage and and mobilize uh, voters and constituents. So let's talk about some of those different platforms. You know, Facebook is obviously, I think, the the largest front in the political war. Certainly was in sixteen. I imagine will be again. But you spend a little bit of time because I think sometimes folks may think that all these platforms are the same. But of course, the way you utilize them, the creative that you put forward, what you're trying to accomplish, I think, you know, can be quite different. So I think it'd be great to get a tutorial on how you see the major platforms, um, you know, as it relates to 20. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned Facebook. I think Facebook has become a real household name, <laughs> um, for better and for worse. Uh, there's a there's a lot of controversy around it, but um, it's a really incredibly powerful platform um, that a majority of Americans and also people around the world uh, utilize to communicate with people in their lives and and share content and information about themselves, and increasingly really use it to to get their news and information. Information. Um, Google, of course, is another uh, digital platform and company that uh, you know a lot of people use for searching all of the things that they search on the internet. And um, of course, there's other platforms that are really popular, like Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter and TikTok, and uh, the list goes on and on. And so, I mean, I think when it comes to the ones that hold really the, the the largest audiences and the, the most data about people and thus the most influence um, over the way that we communicate and, and increasingly um, are playing a bigger role in our politics and our campaigns. Uh, Facebook and Google are the two that often come to mind. Um, at Acronym, we spend a lot of time uh, digging into the transparency tools that are fairly new that both Google and Facebook have released um, that allow you to see who is advertising um, political and advocacy uh, content and messaging on these platforms. So, you know, really, I guess, zooming out, uh, social media platforms like Facebook are really where a lot of people spend their time engaging with each other. And then, of course, you have digital platforms and channels like Google where you're using that more as a, a utility or a service um, provider of how you're kind of engaging with the world and information. Um, so, uh, you know, they're they're both incredibly powerful platforms as, as well as other social media channels like Instagram and Twitter to just connect with people. Um, the other thing I would say is that they, you know, they're, they're, they're for-profit corporations. They're quite massive corporations, and they have played a really, really significant role in evolving the the media and information ecosystem that we all live in and engage with in, in a pretty dramatic way. And they hold a lot of power <laughs> and influence um, because of of the amount of of users that that engage with their platforms and put information on them. And so, you know, that's a that's a bigger debate. It could be a whole podcast on in and of itself in terms of the the data that these companies collect and how you use them. Um, and it's a it's a worthy topic and a, quite a controversial one to dig into. But really, at the end of the day, these are the platforms and channels that people are going to, uh, you know, multiple times a day on their phones and on their laptops to engage in various ways, and that gives them a great deal of uh, of influence. And and if you leverage them smartly, everyone from a small business owner to a national presidential campaign, they can be really powerful uh, channels for communication and mobilization. Well, I do want to come back to some of the questions and controversy around advertising, which you've spoken to publicly. But I think sometimes people think about a presidential campaign even today, you know, in 2019 as, you know, debates and conventions and speeches, you know, and door knocking. And, and all that's part of it, obviously. And you mentioned, you know, there's other, you know, platforms like TikTok, which I want to talk about later and in Twitter. But do you think it's fair to say that the 2020 election you know, first of all, it's fought on phones more than anything else. And then it is really going to be a battle on Facebook and Google. I mean, if you had to choose, like, what is the central front in the war? Is that it? You know, I really do believe that it increasingly is. Mm -hmm. um, our social media uh, 
profiles and platforms have become a real extension of the majority of people, right? It's it's another sort of um, limb or appendage to yourself, right? And so you're constantly checking in with it, updating it, sharing information. Um, and it's, you know, it's changed our behavior, <laughs> I think, as a society and as a as a population um, in, in really, you know, in ways that we can't even necessarily fully understand yet. But that means that um, it, it is this always on kind of a window that you're able to really kind of curate uh, what you share and what you put out there. But I think increasingly, especially with younger generations that grew up on the internet and really, you know, have grown up with social media, um, it's it's a really big part of their life and part of their their day each day, um, thinking about what they're putting out there consuming information and content from their friends. And so that that is no different in the political landscape. It's where people are engaging with political debate and candidates. And and so it's just where people are. So if if you're a campaign or a candidate and you're not there and you're not on platforms like Facebook and Google in a way that is is native to how information is displayed and consumed, then um, you're really missing a massive opportunity to engage with potential supporters because that is where they are, for better and for worse. So, you know, the organization you run, Acronym, obviously is a digital first, many of your campaigns digital only. But if you're a presidential campaign, or I would argue any campaign in 2020, I guess, don't you need to be Facebook and YouTube first? So my point there is, so you said you need to be on those platforms, you need to be native. But, you know, there's always a kind of question of priority, right? So if a candidate is going to put out a new policy on an issue, you know, I think still traditionally a lot of campaigns think about, well, obviously you want to think about what the policy is. I think, I still think that's important. But, you know, are you going to give <laughs> yes. an interview to the Times or the Post or the Des Moines Register? And, you know, where are you going to give this speech? And, you know, maybe you cut a video, you know, that comes from the event. But it's not thinking, okay, let's start with our Facebook and YouTube play and let all the rest of that stuff kind of fall from that. And A, I'd love your thought on that. And B, do you think the Democratic candidates are thinking enough in that way? Because Trump seems to, I mean, he's very focused himself on Twitter, but they seem to be just naturally, you know, a social media first operation. Yeah. Well, let me start there because I think Trump is a brilliant marketer. And, you know, I think that he he has always been a marketer and a self-promoter. Um, and he's always really taken advantage of new channels and modes of communication that really uh, reach people uh, where they are, if you know, considering reality TV and The Apprentice, um, to to now, of course, Twitter and social media, and so I really do believe that Trump fundamentally understands that he can circumvent, and certainly does circumvent, the traditional media. Um, filter bubble by talking directly to Americans and his supporters on channels like Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, I remember I, I spent um, a little over a year as a press secretary in the Senate. And, you know, the, the Senate is, is, a, is, a, is a very old and traditional <laughs> institution. And I always thought it was strange. This was even back in 2009 that we were still putting together press releases that reporters would take or leave or copy and paste and add a headline to in the in the local and state newspapers 
when we had channels like Facebook at that point and email newsletters. And it was so interesting to me because it was like, we can communicate directly to people. And then, of course, yes, it's great to reach even more people through earned media, but we now have direct communication channels. Right. And that was 2009. And, and Trump really does understand that and uses it to his advantage because then what happens is, you know, he puts out a tweet and then all of the earned and mainstream media channels then cover the tweet. And he's really, he's he's put his message out in the exact way that he wants. And so, yes, to your question, I think that candidates need to have a digital first strategy because we are living in a digital first information ecosystem. Like, I can't stress that enough that the media landscape has changed so dramatically that there aren't controlled channels like there used to just be television and radio where everything passes through a media filter. Now, you know, information is distributed and every single person is a content producer. And that's no different for candidates and politicians. And Trump really does understand that. To your question about if Democratic campaigns are are really starting to do this, I think you know, we have all seen that the candidates and and elected officials that have been the most savvy at leveraging social media and communicating to people tend to be digital natives. They right. tend to be younger and just don't think about it as a tactic or a strategy that they need to factor into their strategic plans. They absolutely just do it because it's how they think about communication. Um, and, you know, you could call that a generational divide, but it, I mean, I think it is in some ways. But Everybody can learn how to get smarter, and it just it just takes spending time on these platforms. And I think that that's one of the challenges is that um, a lot of candidates and elected officials tend to be of an older generation. And so this is a scary, uncharted territory for them. It's It doesn't make as much sense as a television ad or buy does because they can turn on the TV and see it. If they're not actually scrolling through Facebook or Instagram every day, it's very hard for them to think about how to deploy those channels to their advantage. So I, I still think a lot of campaigns have a long way to go. I will say, though, on a positive note that I am so excited about the bench of candidates running in the Democratic primary right now for a number of reasons, um, but but also just watching how many of them are really starting to to leverage the digital landscape and ecosystem in smart ways and in native ways and Something else that um, I've, you know, been sort of, uh, it's kind of been a broken record for me for a few years is I was on, as you know, uh, President Obama's reelection campaign at headquarters in Chicago in 2011 and 2012 on the digital team. Uh, we were the biggest team. We were the biggest department. And, um, and, and it made sense that digital kind of created its own team and department when when it was you know just sort of a, a new a new sort of landscape and 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 we and it was mostly utilized for email fundraising today digital is everything and it, the, you have to leverage the internet and social media and email and mobile to do all of the things a campaign needs to do, from fundraising to organizing to advertising and paid media and communications. And so I really think that we're at this incredible moment right now where we need to infuse digital tools and talent and strategies into every department um, and program that a, that a campaign um, runs. And I, I've been really excited and heartened to see some of the presidential primary campaigns do that. They've right. broken up digital so they don't have one department or one digital director. And they've really they've really infused it into everything from their organizing to media programs. And I think I think that's the right approach for the way the world works today. 
So you and I have spent a lot of time talking about this, but Acronym does an amazing job of capturing what's happening uh, in the digital world week to week, not just in terms of the dollar spent is important, but sort of what strategies Trump and the Democrats are executing on. So talk a little bit about how concerned should folks listening to this be about Trump's digital spend, the disparity. But aside from the raw dollars, talk about what you think they're doing. So what is it they're doing now that's going to cause us problems, you know, seven or eight months down the road when the general election really um, takes hold? Yeah. And you and I do talk about this every day. <laughs> and um, I lose a lot of sleep over it, as I know you do. It's, uh, it's, it's how we ended up uh, meeting and working together, which I'm very grateful for. But generally, I, this is something that gives me a great deal of anxiety. And uh, I hate to bestow that upon your listeners, uh, but they're probably already feeling it if they're listening. Um, so, so as we all know, Trump's campaign invested a ton in Facebook um, and digital advertising uh, in the 2016 election. And um, we all know that that Russia invested a little bit as well. Hmm. Uh, and that played a role. And will again. But, um, yeah. Yep. <laughs> what what is really kind of different and and unprecedented is that they never really stopped investing in reaching voters through advertising um, and boosted content on these platforms after he took the oath of office. Um, and you know we've only been tracking the uh, Trump campaign spending on Facebook and Google since about October when we launched our newsletter, small plug for what it's worth. Um, and and we did it. We actually created the newsletter in large part um, to be able to educate uh, political reporters and campaign strategists and operatives about what his campaign was doing and also try to educate folks on um, the nuance of of different ways of using these platforms and using digital ads to collect data, to fundraise, to persuade people. Um, and, and it was something where, you know, even just two years ago, reporters only cared about a digital media campaign or program uh, if it was, you know, high six figures or or seven figures uh, in terms of budget size. They, they wouldn't even write about it. And then the whole article would just be, you know, uh, Priorities USA launches million dollar digital effort to reach XYZ voters. And so that that always was a frustrating um, thing for me because as a as a former digital director, because uh, there's so much that just happens <laughs> online, and, and finally we have these transparency tools that give us a window into it, but it's really difficult to anticipate uh, the threat <laughs> or the competition on the other side and how they're reaching people and with what messages if you can't see it, right? And we're so used to TV and radio where there's there's reporting and you actually see the ads, and now thankfully we have that on digital, but what Trump's campaign has been focused on in large part, and, you know, as of uh, this week, his campaign has spent over $27 million on Facebook and Google alone since the midterms. Um, and the large amount of that money has been sent, spent on ads to essentially collect data, um, email addresses and cell phone numbers um, of 
his supporters and of likely supporters and even potentially folks that are not likely supporters. Um, And they do that for a number of reasons. Uh, First, the more data they have about supporters and likely supporters, um, the more easily they can find even more people like that. So you can, um, you know, if you have an, an email list of people who all signed a petition about building the wall, you can then upload that email list um, to Facebook, uh, and you can create a lookalike model and a custom audience to find people that share common attributes or values or interests as those people that you have their email addresses of. And then Facebook and their algorithm allow you to find those people that share those attributes and you target them with an ad with a petition to build the wall and suddenly you have their email addresses. And so what he's been able to build and Brad Parscale, his campaign manager, has been very open and transparent about this um, in many Fox News interviews that I've watched um, is that, you know, they're building this massive database and they're able to use it to identify other people who will be responsive to Trump and his message, including people who maybe have never voted before but are eligible. And then they're able to register those voters and bring them into the fold And they're able to do that in states that we lost by such a despairingly small number of votes in 2016, like Wisconsin and Michigan. And so um, that's that's one of the things that makes me very scared. They're not just uh, collecting email addresses to fundraise. That's a large part of what they do. But they're also collecting email addresses to learn more about their supporters to find more of them. Um, And then, of course, they're doing a lot of persuasion. And we're going to see that increase dramatically over the coming months. But we have tracked um, a few scenarios where they have been targeting um, small audiences like uh, likely Venezuelan expats in Florida with Spanish language ads uh, gloating about the administration's um, aggressive, bold stance on what's happening in, in Venezuela. In an effort to bring them on their side, they have targeted black voters in states like South Carolina with ads about their criminal justice reform bill. Um, And then, of course, a lot of their online fundraising and list building ads um, screaming about how impeachment is a partisan witch hunt and Democrats have been out to get him removed since the day he was elected you know, in the largest (laughs) win ever, which is so false. Um, That also counts as persuasion. He's driving a very consistent narrative um, to to, to voters and supporters day in and day out, and he's continuing to keep them engaged while he's also micro-targeting folks that maybe aren't already with him with specific messages that could get them on his team in the states that are going to be critical next November. So people hear that overview, and I think a lot of people would say, wow, we need to ban Facebook ads and YouTube ads, for that matter, right away. You have spoken, you know, quite publicly and I think powerfully about why that would put Democrats and progressives at a disadvantage, um, both in terms of this next election, but just broadly. Could you share your thoughts on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at a high level, digital advertising and social media platforms are complex things. They're new and they're not very 
transparent. They're incredibly opaque. And part of the reason I started Acronym is I started to get under the hood of the digital advertising industry and realized how much fraud and waste <laughs> there really is. And and I think platforms like Facebook and Google are are actually um, fairly strong and you can, you can love them or hate them, but they're a huge part of the information ecosystem, as I mentioned. And so um, th- they are also really powerful tools for for fundraising, organizing, and and mobilizing people to take action, including voting, which is so important. And so, um, one, we've got to use every tool and channel available to us to do this work, especially because we cannot leave anything on the table in this election. I don't think I have to convince any of your listeners of that. Um, but when it comes to the political ad debate over whether or not we should ban political ads entirely. Number one, we desperately need regulation, right? We have regulation of broadcast television and radio ads um, from, from the Federal Elections Commission. They have been very slow because they are essentially not an effective body right now. They've been slow to to really kind of wrap their minds or any policies or standards around how to how to approach the digital ecosystem when it comes to campaign finance and regulations. And so in the absence of federal regulation of the political advertising on platforms like Facebook and Google, they're left to regulate themselves. And they've really started to do that in a big way since 2016, in large part because of the stories and evidence that came out that they were, you know, manipulated by foreign um, powers and interests. And um, and so that's troubling, right, on its own. Um, when a corporation regulates itself, that's not the best case scenario. But what you're referring to, I, I wrote a Medium post about this and have spoken about it publicly, is that there has been this knee-jerk reaction because of, of some of the alarm bells we've been ringing an acronym about how much Trump is spending online, that banning Facebook ads would, uh, would take away his advantage. And the reason that that is absolutely false is because they have built enormous audiences on Facebook and other platforms, and they have been able to mine so much voter data already, uh, more than we uh, more than we know about, frankly, given the amount of money that they've spent, that if Facebook ads were shut down, the only party that would be hurt by that is Democrats, because we haven't had the same advantage. We we haven't had a candidate um, who's been able to really reach and engage a large swath of the electorate to potentially support them. And we haven't had the ability to have a center of gravity or a candidate who can really build and engage a huge audience on the platform itself. And so the way I'm trying to step back, because I want to simplify this for folks, the way that a platform like Facebook works is that if you have a large audience, if if you have, you know, a million people who like your Facebook page, one, you still have to put money behind your content to get them to see it because that's how the, the platform has monetized. That's how they make money. Um, but if advertising was taken away, the larger your existing audience is, the algorithm will favor you and your content. So you post something without putting money behind it. Enough people will see it because of your audience size that that will mean more people see it because when somebody likes it or shares it, obviously that's expanding the reach of that post on Facebook. So you take away the ability to put money behind your content to reach new audiences. The only folks that will benefit on the platform are the ones that already have huge existing audiences. And that's not just Trump, though he obviously has a huge existing audience on Facebook. That's the biggest publisher's 
that won't be affected at all by political ads on Facebook like Fox News and Breitbart, who continue to be two of the most engaging and far-reaching channels and brands on the Facebook platform. So if you take away political ads, Trump and his conservative media ecosystem that amplifies him at every turn will all still be able to reach people on this powerful platform, and Democrats simply won't. Another right. thing that is um, part of part of my sincere argument that we we don't try to ban um, political ads on Facebook right now is that Facebook is one of the most powerful tools for online fundraising for campaigns, for grassroots fundraising, which is one of the most beautiful um, democrat like democratizing uh, elements of campaigns today. If we're going to have money in politics, which I hope we don't for very long. But if we are, which we do today, then it is so much more powerful if if those resources are coming from from people in small dollar contributions because they believe in and want to be a part of these campaigns and movements. And Facebook has really enabled an enormous amount of money to come in small dollar donations to campaigns. So if you took away political ads and every online fundraising ad on Facebook from a campaign is a political ad, you would also be cutting off real resources to campaigns as small as local races all the way up to the presidential right. candidates. Well, and and a lot of folks don't know that. And so that's something it just requires more nuance and more context. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So let's talk about a platform that does not allow advertising. I'm not talking about Twitter, TikTok. So, you know, your newsletter at Acronym captured this a couple weeks ago where you talked about what was happening on TikTok. I think it's fair to say your belief is Democrats aren't leveraging it. And for those who don't know, TikTok is um, the fastest growing social uh, media platform used by young people and not just, you know, uh, 14-year-olds, but people are going to vote in this election and volunteer. So... Tara, how should a, a Democratic, you know, I guess maybe the, the campaigns now, but particularly when we have a nominee, think about maximizing their effectiveness on a platform like that that doesn't allow advertising? Sure. Yeah. And, and that's it's a really important note that TikTok um, has decided not to take political advertising. I think that's it makes sense for that platform. So and TikTok also makes me um, very <laughs> empathetic to older generations who feel like they really don't understand Facebook or won't ever uh, be a, a an active Facebook user because um, it really is not something that feels native to me at all as a 33-year-old millennial. Um, it's, it really is for the youths, as we call the young kids. Um, but it is, uh, it's something that it, it is where young people are spending a lot of time. And, and right now, um, you know, everything is a competition for 
people and voters' attention. Um, every one of these platforms and a lot of young people's attention is being uh, is being focused on platforms like Snapchat and TikTok increasingly. And so, so it would be a mistake for campaigns not to have an organic presence there. And what I mean by that is finding ways to use the platform the way that it is so it essentially makes these little videos on loop that um, a, a lot of different kind of trends uh, gain momentum on. Um, so if you think about the uh, ice bucket challenge from a number of years ago, right, it had this contagious effect where people would, uh, and it was it was all for, I believe, ALS, um, uh, and, 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 you know, you would, you would, you would make a video of yourself dumping this bucket of ice on your head, and then you would challenge three or five of your friends to do the same, and they would do it, and it had this incredible ripple effect, and 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 raised an enormous sum of money for this, for this issue. And so TikTok, like somebody comes up with something, uh, and one of my favorite things, which is super nerdy, um, but is that there are these young people that are doing like these history lessons by reenacting moments in history or uh, parts of the Constitution, and they'll you know dress up as it or they'll put their own spin on it. And then, you know, that gets a ton of engagement and views, and then people start doing it on their own. It's really cool. And it it really does feel like a, a community. Um, and so I think that campaigns would be really smart to, again, put their own spin on it. So, you know, you can do things like showing more behind the scenes or participate in some of these kind of trending uh, content uh, I don't know, meme drops. I don't know what the right word would be. I'm sure there is one that the kids know on TikTok. But um, I I think Washington Post has actually done an amazing job. We highlighted them in the newsletter. But uh, the, the producer of their TikTok channel uh, uses it in really incredible, funny and lighthearted ways. And I think uh, campaigns could do the same. I will say, though, having been on campaigns and having advised them in the past, uh, it can be overwhelming that there's so many platforms. So you really do need to think about um, how many how many folks that you really need to reach and engage are on them. And I would say TikTok is a very smart platform for younger folks. But you can't put a, uh, a YouTube video or a Facebook content strategy on TikTok. You've got to create a TikTok strategy. So it really means having somebody who spend a, a lot of time on that platform driving that uh, that account and that channel. And um, I hope that we do see more of that. Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, in a presidential campaign, you have people responsible for running Wisconsin, right, or running Pennsylvania. So state teams. But your point is, you know, a successful presidential campaign is going to have to have not one monolithic approach to these platforms. You really do need to have teams and strategies unique to each platform with a clear sense of what you're trying to accomplish, correct? That's absolutely right, because each of the platforms are different. The content is different. Um, the audiences are different. The way people engage with the content and and engage with each other on these platforms, it really does. And, and you know, every industry is challenged by this right now because you really do. You have to hire entire content teams <laughs> um, and, uh, and and platform, uh, platform directors, people that are just responsible for one or two platforms so they can really uh, essentially embed themselves in them so they can leverage them most effectively. Right. So talk a little bit about memes. So I think when people think about digital media or social media platforms as it relates to politics, they think, well, there's advertising and then, you know, there may be posts, you know, that a candidate writes. But memes across a lot of these platforms are really seem to be one of the most effective ways to move message. Talk a little bit about that if you could. 
Yeah, sure. So uh, the way that I often describe memes is they're like billboards or like the cartoons in your Sunday newspaper or the New Yorker. You know, pick your pick your poison. But uh, they're 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 just simple static graphics that tell a whole story or message through a few words <laughs> and an image. Uh, sometimes you don't even need text uh, to kind of uh, evoke an emotion or um, or a message. And they tend to, you know, when they, when they hit a, a cultural nerve or touch on something that's happening in the news cycle um, I, and in politics, they, they tend to drive a lot of engagement. And I think part of that is because uh, they're they're, they're simple and they're usually either funny or they, you know, they really uh, they really kind of provide social commentary and validate um, an opinion you might have in in a really sticky shareable way. So, you know, there's uh, and they, they so they have a lot of opportunity for virality. So you can spread a message very quickly. The other thing is like everything I've I've uh, you know is competing for our attention on our phones and on our laptops um throughout the day and so if you can if if something is really bizarre looking or you know like it, it, if it does not, if it if it's native to Facebook, um, in the sense that it's clearly made for the platform, but it doesn't look like all of the other posts you're scrolling through, you're more likely to to stop and take a look. And we usually call those thumb stoppers. Um, and and memes are really designed to do that. They're designed to sort of stop you in your tracks and resonate uh, with with a core belief or um, or opinion that you have. And so, you know. There's a lot of talk we don't actually know, but I think it's it's fair to say that the right um, invests a lot more time, and um, you see a lot more uh, kind of conservative and pro-Trump memes um, that get a lot of traction. But if you never see those, it's it's because we live in echo chambers on these social media platforms. So you're really only seeing what people who think like you or share beliefs that you have are sharing. And so, um, you know, I think that it, our team spends a lot of time living in the spaces that don't align with our values or our politics um, to better understand it. And and meme culture is, is a very big culture. And if you can develop good memes, it's not about being a good designer. It's just kind of understanding the internet and how people respond to emotional and, and kind of symbolic content, then you can really move people. Yeah. So the echo chambers is definitely worthy its own episode. (laughs) So we've got two of those now. But I'm curious, so is hearing you talk about memes, I think, you know, for people who are really invested in this election, and I'm working on a book about, you know, citizen activism in the next election. So, you know, they can contribute and they can, you know, plan to go to a battleground state or work phone banks, right? Or, you know, repost comments and content from our nominee. But it sounds like when you think about memes, like if the average, just an average citizen out there, you know, who might have a good idea and puts it in a meme format, like that could go viral, right? I mean, I think the question I have for you, now they may not have a big advertising budget behind it, but to your point, groups like Acronym and others could decide to put money behind something and boost it. So it seems like we need a lot of sort of citizen creators out there, you know, picking up their oars here and, and rowing a little bit. That's absolutely right. And everybody's already creating content every day, whether they're sharing, you know, photos of their dog or their kids um, or or they're making TikToks. And so, I mean, I really do think that um, we've got to we've got to 
educate supporters and activists and organizers about the real power they have um, with their voice on these platforms and 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 to use it and not to not to share content that doesn't feel right to them or doesn't resonate with them or or feels too much like an advertisement. Um, that's not how people engage online, but but to actually just like the same way that they post pictures of their dog or they do an Instagram story um, when they're, you know, going to get, I don't know, their haircut or they're at the dentist, whatever it is, right. is to is to integrate their beliefs into it and talk about it and just and and just be more willing to create these memes and 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 talk about what's happening in the world and in politics and in this election um, in a way that feels comfortable to them. And I think memes are an easy way to do that. You don't have to be um, an artist or a designer. In fact, the the most viral memes are really ugly for the most part, but they they hit a nerve. And um, I think everybody's capable of 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 commentary in whatever format feels right to them. And on whatever platform they they love, like Instagram's my platform. It's my favorite, um, and so I'm probably more likely to to use my Instagram uh, channel to to talk about you know my politics in my own way. But we want to cur- encourage everybody to do that. I also think it should be a core part of organizing programs today. Mm-hmm. Sharing content in your own voice, and this is a huge, huge uh, 180 from even just four or six years ago where campaigns wouldn't want any of their volunteers to tweet. It was so risk averse and so top down. And now we want to encourage every organizer and supporter to be tweeting about a candidate um, or or an issue or a position on an issue because that's powerful. Um, and you've said this before. You said it on our podcast. And I've heard you say it in other spaces where, you know, a lot of us talked a lot about Trump in 2016 online and used our our social capital and platforms to to disparage him or or, or disbelieve that he could be the the candidate and the nominee and then eventually the president. But we didn't we didn't talk a whole lot about Hillary Clinton right. and 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 why we were behind her and why we were um, so excited about our candidacy. And of course, some people did, but I think it's an important story because we've got to be out there because. Because this noise and and messaging and content really does travel and it has an impact that's hard to measure. And we've got to understand that to be able to use it to our advantage and to be able to build real energy and momentum and, and power going into the election. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Selling a little or a lot? <laughs> Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you
you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. Let's talk a little bit about boosted content. So again, I think a lot of folks may think that on digital platforms, you know, it's ads like we used to create for TV, but they're unique to platforms. But a lot of the most effective work that, you know, groups like yours do, and, and you know, you mentioned Trump does this well, is boosting content. Talk a little bit about that and what types of content that can be. Sure. So um, the difference between an advertisement and, and boosting um, a piece of content is really just as you said, when you when you produce an advertisement, it's just like producing a television ad, but it could just be a meme or it could be um, a video uh, for you know designed for the platform, produced for the platform. Um, but what you can also do on platforms like Facebook and YouTube is you can put money behind existing content um, that you find that is either public domain or. Um, you know, created by other folks and target that content to specific audiences. So what we do a lot of, and I know other groups um, like Priorities and some of the other campaigns on the left that we've been tracking do, is put money behind news articles um, that that bolster a specific message or narrative that a campaign wants to um, remind voters of. And so, uh, and I think this is interesting, and this is um, a little depressing, as some of this conversation has been, but because of how much content there is and how media is always on across so many different platforms and channels today, um, people are mostly only consuming what is delivered to them on their social news feeds. So what's targeted to them by advertisers like, you know, big brands and candidates and campaigns, but also from their friends. And and it's it's become a little bit of a passive experience. Um, you know, a lot of people are not actually going to specific websites to find specific information. They're going, they're logging onto their social media platforms that are always on on their phones and, and they're scrolling and that's how they're seeing headlines and news articles and, and opinions from people usually like them or in their inner circles. And so so it's really important that um, especially people like I think about my own, my own filter bubble and my own echo chamber, you know, you and I consume the news obsessively. And, um, and a lot of folks who work in politics, of course, do. But you can't assume that most people and most voters are are engaging with news in that way, because they're busy, they're living their lives. And so, if if they're not being targeted with that information, even if it is just news articles, they're likely not seeing it. 
So that is a strategy that we found to be really effective because um, news sources are also more trusted than advertisements. And the advertising ecosystem has evolved so much that it's so much more about native content than highly produced ads um, because people have a higher bar. They want they want authenticity. They don't want to be sold something through an advertisement. They want to they want to see real people talking about things and and real content that that matches the way that they're consuming. And so, um, it's actually a very effective thing to just target people with news. Um, yeah. But you can also do that with with videos. Um, people, you know put out their own videos of support for a candidate on YouTube or Facebook. And sometimes you're able to actually target that video with folks' permission um, to other voters like them. And that can be really powerful. Yeah, another reason for people to become citizen content creators. Well, thanks for that discussion about Boosted News because I think a lot of Democrats, you know, they see the coverage, to your point, about the effects of the trade war on rural economy or Trump's tax cuts, you know, going to the wealthy and didn't create any of the jobs and health care loss coverage and, you know, things in the environment, the Endangered Species Act. And we assume people are seeing all this and they're not. I mean, we have a serious last mile problem. And so, you know, strategies around boosted news are important. So, Terry, you founded acronym after the 16 election. You did a lot of really smart work on digital platforms to help down ballot races, state legislative races that were really still the province of like, you know, crappy direct mail. Um, and you, you know, did such really amazing work to help have a, a great 18. One of the other things you did was made a decision to start a media company that would help establish, you know, local digital only newspapers. So you currently have them going in Virginia and Arizona with plans from additional states. Talk about the importance of that. I think it's for, important for folks to know these are not fake news properties. You know, these are real news and real reporters and local journalists, but that are really covering both local stories and national stories with a state lens. And I think that's a, been a missing part of our flywheel out there is that kind of content that either people are consuming originally or that's something that they share or, you know, organizations could boost through spending. But but just talk about your belief in that gap that you're trying to fill. So. I'm a former journalist. I went I went to journalism school. I was uh, a reporter and a producer um, for a number of years before I transitioned full time into politics um, in 2009. And uh, I I am a deep, 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 strong believer in the fourth estate and and the role um, that journalists and journalism plays in our society and needs to play um, to to hold great powers <laughs> um, accountable. Frankly, and because of the way that the information ecosystem um, has evolved, uh, it is increasingly hard for um, for traditional media outlets and 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 journalists to actually break through for all the reasons we've been talking about. And um, so it, especially at the local level, so local news, and I think a lot of people know this now because it's been reported on quite a bit, but local news um, publishers and newspapers are are closing in towns and cities and states across the country every day now. And it's it's not only deeply sad to me, but it is um, there is a direct correlation between uh, local journalism and civic participation and engagement. And so if we don't have local journalism, um, people are going to be even less engaged in the political process and their communities. And I think, you know, everyone listening would agree that that is that is a very bad and dangerous and scary thing. And when you add to that um, all of the owned media brands and channels and properties that um, uh, the right has and has invested in for many, many years now, 
um, which I think they would say was in a response to what they believed was a liberal mainstream media. Everything from fo- talk radio and Fox News to Breitbart to now thousands of online um publications and fake news sites that are spreading misinformation online and amplifying Trump and 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 Republicans uh the the left doesn't actually have any of that. So, you know, Trump calls the mainstream media the fake news media. That, that's very intentional because he's he's undermining um the role of objective journalists and journalism. Uh, and and this is, I mean, I th- this is propaganda 101, you know, don't trust anyone but me. And then, you know, you're you're like Teflon. Um, people, you know, are, are so convinced. And I think Fox has done that as well. They have just really kind of tribalized people around um, a lot of lies and misinformation. So the Democratic Party and the left doesn't have channels like that. And, um, and you know, in, in, in a lot of ways, because they, they didn't see it as a, probably a, a good thing or a moral thing. And I think it's that's also a worthwhile debate. But the reality is that because the right has all of this owned media infrastructure, um, they are really able to to reach and engage people for less money and drive consistent strategic offensive narratives that put Democrats on the defense all of the time. And for a really long period of time, Democratic campaigns and organizations were would only rely on short-term advertising programs to get their message out there. And that just doesn't work in today's world. So the reason that 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 we decided to invest in local journalism, which I know is a very peculiar and confusing thing to a lot of people, is because we, one, believe that the absolute best, most effective counter to misinformation that is spreading online is facts, <laughs> fact-based information. And so – and we're not seeing it reach people. So in the vacuum of local news dying and the right wing creating all of these local news pub- publications and properties – and pro-Trump companies like Sinclair buying 195 local television affiliates to amplify his message and platform, um, we weren't even competing with that information and giving people the facts so they can make informed decisions. So it's not enough to just run large advertising programs to support candidates and causes. Um, that won't, that's, I, I describe it sort of as the media infrastructure that the right has is the cake. And advertising programs and the dollars they put behind content is the is the icing. It reinforces the narratives they drive in the media. And, and we don't have um, a counter to that. And so we, we only really have the icing, the advertising. And so we thought it was deeply important to counter misinformation and get voters the facts at the local level to also increase civic engagement and participation. And so it is it's sort of a strange thing. I'll I'll admit it, but I think it's really important that we start to communicate to to all people year round um about our values and about who's representing them and and what's at stake um day to day in their state houses and at the national level and and doing that where they get their information which is which is online. Well, I'm very admiring of you and your team for deciding to work on this and and I violently agree with you that not you know first of all for the country and us as citizens before Democrats it's important but also I think for our party to to do what it needs to do in the long term. This is such an important ingredient. So, Tara, you've been really generous with your time. Last question. So, Acronym also has decided, and and this was announced a couple of weeks ago, um, something that wasn't on your roadmap for 2020. You've decided to get involved 
through a, a program called Four is Enough between now and, and when we have a nominee, although maybe some work after that, to help fill this gap as, as Trump is spending and learning and moving message. And our candidates are, uh, understandably, only focused on trying to beat each other and become the nominee. How are we reaching the voters that will decide this election, you know, over the next few months? Because the general election has started, only one side's on the field. That's Trump and Parscale and company. So talk a little bit about that was not an easy decision. And obviously, it's something you and I talked about. But I'm, I'm just curious for you why you decided to get involved in this. And again, to tell people why this is important, because I think the big things are the big things, you know, the state of the economy and yeah. how good a campaign Trump runs and who we nominate and do they run a good campaign or we at war with somebody. Like there's a lot of big things out there none of us have control over. But what happens over the next few months can matter on the margins. And unfortunately, this election probably will be decided on the margins. So I think it'd be great just for folks to understand a little bit about, you know, the severity of the challenge that you identified and, and why you decided to try and help get involved. You played a bit of a role in that, David. So, yeah, I apologize uh, for that. Transparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's good. So, so I mentioned that we we put out this newsletter um, every Friday that tracks the digital spending and, and some of the tactics that all of the presidential candidates, including Trump, use each week online and, and their spending online. And um, we really we started to just see the spending increase and and uh, and it made us really nervous. And we were you know we were kind of sounding the alarm through our newsletter and on social media and um, and getting a lot of a lot of questions and engagement and interest from reporters but we weren't really seeing any efforts come up at the scale that we really believed was necessary on the left to counter Trump and and I want to be clear too that that doesn't mean dollar for dollar and it certainly doesn't mean reaching the same people he's reaching necessarily um, you and I have both said this multiple times but um, even if Trump wasn't spending any money online we we should still be right. driving messaging and reminding voters every day online and where they get their information about the stakes of this election and and Trump's broken promises and this corruption that runs rampant in his administration. And so it's not even because of how much he's spending, though that obviously heightens our concern. It's that we've got to meet people where they are. And so we were raising the alarm bell. We really felt like we were kind of yelling into the abyss on this. We're really excited to see groups like like my old my old um, employer Priorities USA, as as well as now Mike Bloomberg, potential candidate for president, um, announcing really large investments in in online advertising programs. Um, but you know, at the time that that you you and I really decided this to take this on. Um, you know, part of it was because we've got to sort of we've got to break the old bad habits and, and old model of just um, relying on on short term advertising programs to to build uh, an, an informed, engaged and, and mobilized electorate. Um, that's not how the right is playing. We've we've got to meet people where they are. We've got to be in their faces and giving them information every day. And frankly, three organizations or campaigns spending a huge amount is not enough. Um, we need every organization um, that that wants to see Trump out of the White House next year uh, be using every channel and tool available to them to communicate 
um, the stakes of this election. So I'm really grateful that we're seeing more investment. We are proud to be playing a role in this and and being very complementary when it comes to messaging and outreach to other groups that are spending significant money on this effort. But I still don't believe it's enough. And, and I don't think that um, anyone wants to wake up the day after the election and feel the way that we felt the day after the 2016 election and, and wonder if there's more we could do. This is where the election is playing out. It's hard because you can't always see it under the surface, but it really, social media is playing a huge role in our politics and our campaigns. And so we've just, we've got to be on there and everybody has a part to play. And, and so I think we just need more of it. And so we're, we're really proud um, to, 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 to play this role. But again, we want everybody to kind of, uh, to kind of step it up and understand how this, how this ecosystem has changed. Yeah, and I just to add to that, so just to let people a little bit in the room and under the hood a little bit. So, you know, Tara, you and I did a call yesterday with some of your team at Acronym talking about, you know, some of the messages and messengers and things we want to test out there in places like Wisconsin and Arizona. And and I won't get into what those are because, you know, that's strategically um, sensitive information, but folks will be seeing some of it eventually on phones and laptops and iPads. But it struck me after the call, like I just felt so desperate in a way because we know there's information that could help ensure people don't move to Trump or make people more likely to be ready for the Democratic nominee, right? Or or maybe even intensify activism. And we're just not getting that to people with the pace and frequency and effectiveness we need to. And to your point, even if Trump was asleep at the switch, which he's not, as important as this election is, we should be doing all this regardless. I think there's now an extra challenge and necessity just because Trump is increasingly intensifying his digital strategy in those states, not just to raise money. So anyway, when we were done with that call yesterday, it was a great call and and you guys are all so smart. But, you know, my level of concern just rose because, you know, this election will be over in less than a year. And a lot of people need to see this information and, and really understand you know, the effects of what Trump has done in office and what he hasn't done and how that's affected them and their family. And again, I think a lot of us who follow news carefully and are in politics just assume there's all this weaponry out there and it's amazing and it must be hurting Trump, but the people we need to see it. Uh, And again, part of that is also just like smart creative testing because it's not simply the words you use, right? It's what's the best way and messenger. And to your point, um, you need to have specific platform strategies. So anyway, I'm just, with all the talent that you bring in your team, Brett, I'm, I'm so happy that you guys have decided to to help, you know, fill the breach here. Well, Tara, I always learn a lot when I talk to you. And even though this is more of a public conversation, I did that again. I'm, I'm sure um, folks out there are going to learn a lot about this is the front in this war, which is the digital uh, war that's going to be fought on phones and laptops and tablets throughout Arizona and North Carolina, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan, maybe states like Florida. And I think you've really educated people about what's important there and what they need to be watching out for. And also that everybody has a role to play. This isn't just about uh, wealthy people giving a lot of money to groups running ads. Everybody can get in this game and and make a pretty profound difference. So thank you for your time and, and all you're doing to help us elect a new president. Well, we're, we're really proud and grateful to have you on the team with us, David. So thank you so much for having me on and uh, for all the work that you're doing to help. Awesome. Thanks, Tara. Thank you, David. I think a really important conversation we just had with Tara McGowan, this election will be fought and won or lost primarily 
on our mobile devices and our laptops. Doesn't mean door knocking and phone banking and debates and television ads, all, all that's incredibly important. But, but every year politics, like the rest of our lives, becomes more dominated by devices. So I think it was really important to understand um, a, each of these platforms is unique, so you can't have one digital strategy. You need to have a Facebook strategy, a TikTok strategy, an Instagram strategy, a YouTube strategy. I think uh, Tara did a great job of, of talking about not just the advantages Trump has because he's waging a campaign right now online, but he's got the benefit of this entire ecosystem, Fox, Breitbart on down, um, that is just driving content each and every day which makes, um, you know, our challenge uh, from the Democratic and progressive side, uh, you know, even more steep. Um, I thought it was really uh, interesting to hear about boosted news. I think a lot of times um, folks think about the digital space and politics through the prism of advertising. Um, but a lot of this um, is not ads that are written, you know, by some uh, creative person, but it's local news or it could be even uh, a piece of content created by an average citizen that with their approval, groups and campaigns can come in and boost that with spending uh, to reach the audiences uh, they need to reach. Um, uh, fascinating discussion about, you know, the, the ongoing debate about Facebook ads. Tara's view is right now that would put you know, the progressives and Democrats at a huge disservice, um, and I thought was very thoughtful about why that is. Um, and really, for me, just brought in the stark relief, um, you know, Trump does think digital first. He himself is very focused on Twitter, but he thinks uh, driving message first, uh, you know, through his own voice, through social media. His campaign is run by digital marketers. Uh, and so I do think that's that's an advantage that they have is is that is just native to them. Uh, and in our field, we have some older Democrats from an age standpoint, younger, some more savvy around digital media than not. But whoever we nominate is going to have to find a way to be thinking not first, you know, today's about what my interview with The New York Times or the speech I'm giving or even my television advertising. They really need to think, you know, what am I trying to drive today through these different platforms? And again, I think Kara did a really good job of explaining that it's not a one-size-fits-all. You really have to think thoughtfully about strategies for each of these platforms. So whether we like it or not, this election is going to be waged, won, and lost, and decided on our phones and on our laptops and on our tablets. And so I think there was nobody better than Tara McGowan to really bring us along for the ride and understand how this is likely to unfold and, and some of the steep challenges progressives have. So thanks for tuning in and look forward to uh, spending time with you next week. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.